1: Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. How can we be happier at work? I hope you're well today. I'm Bruce Daisley. Today's guest is regarded as one of the most influential management thinkers in the world, largely because he considers themes and human behaviours that others avoid discussing. Geoffrey Pfeffer is Professor of Organisational Behaviour at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And he's author of books like Management BS, Power, and most recently, Dying for a Paycheck. It's the last two books that we mainly discuss in today's chat. His book, Power, has become a global bestseller, largely because it's a manual for the Machiavellian. It's a modern-day version of Niccolò Machiavelli's 16th century book, The Prince. It's not that Pfeffer believes that this is what we should behave like to be our best selves, but rather, if we don't behave like this, we're going to be exploited. I was reading through the course notes for Geoffrey's Stanford class on Power, and he says that... Insufficient sensitivity and skill coping with power have cost Stanford graduates promotion opportunities and even their jobs. He says you need to understand these laws of power to get on. Fundamentally, the mistake we're all making, according to Pfeffer, is believing that the world is fair. And I know I'm guilty of this. Whether you watch US politics or British politics, I certainly find myself watching current events thinking a reckoning is going to come when the good guys will win and sort things out. Spoiler alert, the good guys don't win. And the source of that point is history. Jeffrey Pfeffer's belief is that in business, the good guys don't win, so armies help. He believes that leaders often ascend to their position, not through innate goodness, but because they understand the rules of power. Since he wrote it, other authors have jumped on the bandwagon, claiming they've updated his ideas. And after Power, these books like New Power. You'll hear what Geoffrey thinks about that. Now, it wasn't to discuss Power that I contacted Geoffrey, but with such a stark take on the world, the conversation does move on to that. I actually contacted him to talk about his brilliant new book that he's published this year called Dying for a Paycheck. In Dying for a Paycheck, he documents how work's killing us and expresses a desire for us to start measuring firms by the harm they do to their employees a league table of the stresses and the ailments they cause he wants firms to do good and the reason why power is relevant is I raise the question that if we believe leaders are innately not thinking of the greater good when they get on isn't the fact that firms are doing the same the, sort of the consequence of the rules that he championed we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that so that's the reason why I, I mentioned power because we, we do discuss that Let me set the context for the discussion on dying for a paycheck. There's a modern day paradox where visible danger at work has been eliminated. You know, the the idea that we we might get injured doing our jobs. Meanwhile, the invisible, harmful impact at work has been going up. As we've moved away from the visible workplace dangers, there's a new impact of modern work and that's stress. Work is the number one cause of stress. When Jeffrey Pfeffer talks about us dying for a paycheck, this is what he means. He gives a story in the book of a worker at Salesforce.com, sort of huge and immensely prestigious San Francisco tech firm. A senior worker at the firm had a baby and found herself under immense pressure two weeks after giving birth to come and give a keynote presentation. It's a great honour, she was told. And it's this apparent flattery that sits under a lot of workplace stress that Pfeffer observes. Works making a series of apparently well-intentioned demands upon us and these things add up black monday syndrome is the fact that more heart attacks happen on monday than in any other day workplace stress is real and increasing of all workers report stress annually in the UK, these 13.5 million days lost to stress. There's lots of really hidden consequences. His book documents how people are turning to drinking, overeating, other consumptions like drug consumption as a response to workplace unhappiness. A New York Times article he cites said that 21% of lawyers are problem drinkers and 29% report long-term depression. It's Geoffrey Pfeffer's belief that we should try and make these things more visible. We should maybe create league tables of the worst offending workplaces. Now there are things like this already and we discuss sites like Glassdoor which allow workers to review their firms. The issue is that sort of canny employers often game these results asking the happier workers in their firms to go and post reviews so Glassdoor can't necessarily be relied upon to describe a workplace accurately. So I hope that gives the context for the discussion. So here's my chat with Geoffrey Pfeffer. one tiny point of context uh, jeffrey mentions twitter and yet my day job is at twitter so that's why he mentions that i generally try not to discuss myself jeffrey thank you so much for talking to me there's so much we could talk about firstly i want to talk about dying for a paycheck and this new book that you've had out what made you write this book now
2: um <laughs> Well, many things. Um, I've been thinking about writing it for years, and it took me probably long, too long to do it. But uh, I've sat on the, the Stanford Committee for Faculty and Staff Human Resources, which is basically a committee that worries about health benefits, for years. And I've watched that Stanford has wrestled with issues of rising health care costs, which is a problem really all around the world. Um, I mean, every country is facing rising and soaring healthcare costs. costs. Um, I sat on a committee for Hewitt when it was still independent before it got merged with Aon, in which I watched the leading... Um, HR executives from some of Hewitt's largest clients come to these meetings and basically all obsess about only one thing, which was healthcare costs. And as I thought about what companies were doing and countries were doing about healthcare costs, it occurred to me that my intuition was that they were missing one of the biggest sources of the problem, and that source of the problem is the workplace. And so I began with some colleagues looking into this, and the more we looked and the more people I interviewed, uh, the bigger the problem was. So I decided that I needed to write a book that brought attention to this problem, which had been largely ignored. And, uh, and and which is really serious if you are concerned about people's well-being and, for that matter, the healthcare costs that companies and governments are paying.
1: Because you mentioned in the book that the uh, I think the healthcare cost of Walmart in particular is about half a billion dollars, and well that's the cost they bear themselves. And um, and uh, obviously anyone looking at the bottom line starts thinking, All right? How can we get rid of that? That's something that doesn't appear to have yeah. a return to it. Yeah,
2: no, and and healthcare costs. I mean, so this, recently I've come across statistics. The Centers for Disease Control says that 86% of the health care spend in the United States goes for chronic disease. Chronic disease comes mostly from stress. Stress comes mostly from work. Um, And the health care costs crisis around the world which the world economic forum has documented it's the same thing most uh, healthcare spend is on chronic disease chronic disease comes from stress and the individual behaviors such as smoking and drinking and overeating that stress causes um and so if we are serious about reducing healthcare costs and making people's lives better we need to look at the workplace i mean after all I have a quote in the book, which is one of my favorites. We've got Bob Chapman, who's the CEO of this interesting manufacturing conglomerate, Barry Waymiller, and Bob says, according to the Mayo Clinic The person you report to at work is more important for your health than your family doctor. And that has to be true, given, you know, I mean, workplaces are important environments. We spend a lot of time at work. Um, Work is a major source of stress in many people's lives. And if we want to fix the health care cost crisis, we need to fix the workplace.
1: Yeah, the the number one killer of males still remains heart attacks. That's right. And, and, And we can presume that that's stress related.
2: Absolutely.
1: And, and t- tell me this, because obviously in the US, firms are bearing the healthcare costs. Outside of the US, in the, in the UK, we, we have the NHS. The, the costs of healthcare remain important, but um, they're sort of born in a different way. So we don't have it on the same, the same agenda because firms aren't necessarily to, trying to, to offload it. How, how do you see the differences?
2: Well, I think it makes it a lower priority for the firms, but actually it makes it a higher priority for the country. I, I If you used to say to me what's going to change this, um, it is going to be a country, possibly the UK, um, which has a nationalized health system that is going to say to employers, we're tired of you basically taking your social pollution, just like they used to do their environmental pollution, and just dumping it and us having to pay to clean it up. Uh, So the U.K., if you look at the Health and Safety Executive, which is the U.K.'s equivalent to OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, they have reports. Um, And there's been lots of reports in the U.K. on... Uh, the percentage of workdays that are lost due to stress and they're high, the number of total workdays lost due to stress and they're high, and the 1.1 million, which is, I think, a figure I remember of people who are suffering from, you know, health-related workplace stress, work stress-related health issues in the U.K., and so if I were to say, where is this going to change first? I would actually think the UK is, is high on my list. There are people like Sir Michael Marmot, the famous British epidemiologist. There are people like Dame Carol Black, um, who has been, who has been very active in these issues. The UK has done a bunch of reports and a bunch of studies. What, what the, where the UK is at the moment is they have documented the extent of the problem quite well. With the health and safety executive, there's been committees and documents and reports and what there hasn't yet been is any regulatory action given.
1: But what would they change? Would they regulate working hours? Because you you mentioned in the book that we, we we treat people in a way that we couldn't get away with treating animals. But what would we how would regulation look here?
2: Um, I'm not sure, Uh, you know, I think so, but if you said to me, you know, I want to put in a good regulatory regime, I would do it almost exactly the same way we've done for, you know, environmental pollution, such as, you know, um, uh, uh, carbon dioxide or uh, particles in the air. So if I say to you, you know... um, you know you 've you've, you've released too much, too much particulate matter into the air, and people are dying because you 've released all this particulate matter. You need to get the particulate matter out of the air. How you do it will be up to you and how and, and you can use the most efficient technology you want, and you can do it in the most effective way you want, but at the end of the day you can 't be making people um, sick from stuff that you put in the air or the water. I would say exactly the same thing here we know how to me- we know how to measure. We know how to measure uh, the health effects of workplaces. Number one, there is a single-item measure of self-reported health. How healthy do you feel on a five- or nine-point scale? And that item, that one item, has been found to prospectively predict both mortality and morbidity, even when you statistically control for people's current health status and many of their biometric markers, even when you statistically control for other things and even and it's been found to be reliable for various populations including the young the old um the various ethnic and racial groups etc so i would say and secondly that's one measure i'll give you another measure uh, what is your use of psychotropic drugs um, as I say in the book, which you probably read, you know, I have a friend who went to work for Salesforce. She said one week later, I went on antidepressants. It turns out all my friends are on antidepressants. Um, if you go to the Silicon Valley, uh, where I'm sitting right now, the Silicon Valley is awash in psychotropics. It's both 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 legal and illegal. It is a wash in antidepressants, ADHD drugs. Um, it is a wash in cocaine. It is a it is it is it is just. I mean, the drug problem is enormous, and everybody kind of sees it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. So I would say, okay, Mister or Miss Employer, we are going to measure, and we can talk about how to do that in a minute. We are going to measure self-reported health. Um, and norm you against uh, you know, what, what's considered to be good, as we would for anything else. We're going to measure the extent to which your population uses various forms of psychotropics, which indicate because when people are in pain in the workplace, psychological pain, they are going to medicate themselves. Uh, through 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 antidepressants, through alcohol, through a variety of other things, and I we're going to we're going to hold you responsible for figuring out how to improve the health and well-being. Gallup Healthways measures well-being on five dimensions. I mean, we know how to measure this stuff, and so I I'm going to hold you responsible for improving the physical and psychological well-being of the people who are working for you, and you are going to figure out the best way to do it given your particular business and. I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but I'm going to tell you that your objective is to, just as I'm not going to tell you how to get the pollution out of the water, um, but you do it in whatever way you're going to find the the, the most cost effective and that works given your particular business and your particular population.
1: I fully understand the objective there. You tell this vivid story about, I picture it as like an ice cream van, but I suspect it's more like an ambulance, but this this van that travels between tech firms in the valley going to deal with immediate emergency remedial action on, on patients who otherwise protest that they're too busy to go in and seek help from doctors so, so in the first instance quite often this harm that people inflict upon themselves certainly in high income jobs they're complicit right
2: correct they are complicit because they are complicit because of the pressures they are feeling from their employers so let me give you another analogy and maybe you can come up with the answer in which case we're going to have the world's most successful no the world's most successful podcast but maybe they'll not- maybe the british government will knight you like they knighted Sir Michael Marmot and Dame Carol Black so so let me give you another analogy, and you are certainly correct. One of the things that you've said, which is exactly right, is that this is not a problem that afflicts only low-paid people. This actually affects high-paid people. Engineers, doctors, physician burnout is an enormous problem in the U.S., I, su- I suspect in the U.K. also. Lawyers, huge problem in the United States. Um, I don't know if you've read the New York Times article, The Lawyer, The Addict, which is a story of Peter Zimmerman and his um, dying um, from an infection that's associated with drug use. His widow, Eileen Zimmerman, who I know is writing a book about this, went to the American Bar Association, and we're going to get back to exactly the point in one second. She went to the American Bar Association, and she said, my husband, ex-husband actually, died of this infection. I'm kind of interested in understanding problems of, you know, stress in the workplace of lawyers. So you go to the American Bar Association and you can find that they have a committee on alcoholism in the uh, you know alcoholism among lawyers and they have a committee about drug addiction, about lawyers. And you go to the American Bar Association and they have all kinds of data. So they can tell you, and the percentages are enormous, the percentage of lawyers that are alcoholics, the percentage of lawyers that are on drugs, the percentage of lawyers that are on both alcoholics and drugs. They can tell you the toll. They can point to you, we have the American Bar Association Committee on Alcohol Abuse in the profession. We have the Committee on Drug Abuse in the profession. We have committees, we have workplaces, we have working groups, we have reports. We have press releases. We have everything. We have everything except any attempt to fix. Stop it. Any attempt to say to the law firms, you cannot, you are going to be responsible for fixing this problem. So we study the problem, we measure the problem, we examine the problem, we write reports about the problem, but we do not hold the work environments that are creating this problem responsible for doing anything about it.
1: Let's talk about how we might draw attention to this. You wanted league tables and reports of the worst firms? Because I just worry, you mentioned sort of Glassdoor is easily gamed, and I think I would just be worried, knowing the competitive edge to these things, that companies might try to game the system.
2: Yes. I look there's there, there, I if I if I had a perfect answer for this I'd be smarter than I am I mean but the but but like so here's 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 the story I'm having a struggle with this about some with somebody else at the moment the first thing you're going to do to fix the problem is you're going to number one recognize its scope the second thing to fix the problem is you are going to pass or say to people who, who who are in a position to fix the problem, you need to do something. Um, you and I, lovely as we may be, you're not in a position to do anything. I mean, so if you know, if Twitter heaven forbid had an unhealthy workplace, you can't do much about it. Twitter needs to do something about it. If if a law firm is is, you know, has a enormously high percentage of its lawyers that are, you know, on various forms of substances to try to, uh, you know, make you know deal with the stresses and pressures that they're feeling then it's up to the law firm to, f- to fix it you can't go to the people and say you know stop taking the drugs
1: the uh, the i guess the other thing is that sometimes we see these gestures by firms so um, we do see these gestures by firms saying that we've got no limit to the amount of vacation we have and that often doesn't translate into people taking lots of vacation but rather sort of performatively taking very little of it
2: Yeah, no, that's that is exactly right, and one of the reasons why, uh, you know, so the so the question is not. The question is not, do I tell you, you can take as much vacation as you want. You know, I, I talked to somebody a few weeks ago. I said, your place has a gym. He said, yes, if anybody actually used the gym, they'd be fired. <laughs> People would say, why, why, why do you have all this time to be spending in our gym? Um, and this, so the same thing is here. You know, we, 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 the question is not, do we make things available? But have we created a culture an organizational culture in which people feel responsible for the well-being of the people who work for them? Do we, have we created a culture in which the people who work in that organization feel empowered, in every sense of the word empowered, to, to do what is necessary to take care of themselves? Um, you know, do we, have, we, have, have we created a place where, where people actually feel that health is a priority, health and well-being is a priority?
1: Yeah, and and there's a gender split to this right in terms of the the impact I think one of the things you mentioned was men put up with stress, whereas women don't.
2: I don't have like great data on this, but my anecdotal impression from talking to a bunch of people and from listening to who's interested in this issue and for, and for who's involved in the health and well-being industry, et cetera, et cetera, is that women, I think, are much more interested in fixing the problem. Men want to macho through. They want to believe that they're going to be okay, You know that, it's a, you know, that I can put up with anything and that, you know, I'm tough enough to get, to get through with it. And so, yes, I would say there the, there is probably some, um, at least my anecdotal evidence suggests that there's a gender difference. Women want to fix the problem. Men want to drop dead from it. I,
1: I guess then one thing that I definitely did see you talk about is that the machismo that's often used, which is saying if you quit, it's because you weren't good enough for it. And so there's machismo to, to discourage people from resigning. And I wanted to, to look at another Uh, lens on it and that's long hours you talk about these there's no benefit of long hours would your view be to regulate long hours or just to because you mentioned that people like having autonomy my fear about regulating long hours is you remove that autonomy from people
2: well uh, you know not if we i won't tell you when to work i'll just tell you how total how long and total to work i think you know i think the I think attempts to regulate hours have not worked very well, but that's because in many instances, they haven't been enforced very well. Again, it's, it, again the question is, what is the culture we've created? So one of the stories I tell, I think I tell a story in the book, is the head of HR for Patagonia. And when the head of HR for Patagonia used to work for Sears, the department store chain, he got an um, email one day on it won the Christmas Eve at about four and replied the next day, which, of course, would be Christmas Day at about nine in the morning. And the response was, what took you so long? And I said to him, we had, I interviewed him. I said, well, what would happen if somebody did that in Patagonia? And he said, well, we'd fire them. Uh, you know, so a lot of this is not about just regulation, uh, which will do something but doesn't do everything. A lot of this is, is, is are the expectations and the cultures that are created so what do you do when you've got um, managers or leaders sending emails to their employees at all hours of the day and night and expecting responses? Um, so one is you can regulate that. The other is you can, as a company, say this is intolerable behavior, and if you behave this way, you're not going to work for us. We'll send you to work for one of the competitors. You can make our competitors' employees sick. Um, so a lot of this is is around what the managers do. So SAS Institute, the largest privately-owned software company in the world, you know, I mean, they have 35-hour, 40-hour Um Jim Goodnight, the CEO of SAS, goes home at a reasonable hour. The expectation is that you are going to uh, be able to deal with your family, um, work family uh, demands in a healthy and good way, which is one of the reasons why they have a high proportion of women working for them. Uh, you know, Patagonia measures how many, what percentage of the... V- Women working for Patagonia return to Patagonia after they have a baby, and for Patagonia, it's 99%. So you can you can do things to say, have I created a work a family-friendly workplace? Uh, you know, the, 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 how do how do we know that? I got. You know, I got working mothers here. You know, if I say I got a family, I have family-friendly work policies. How do I know that? Because I have nobody with families working here. I mean, you can see the, the contradiction. So there are things that you can do, but a lot of this is around the culture that you have created, the the expectations you've created on on what your people should do and how they should take care of themselves and and what is the expectation for how the organization is going to help those people live their lives and deal with the, the problems that they encounter.
1: I get the sense overall and, and I don't know whether this is when I've scribbled this down. I don't know whether this is something you hinted at or whether it's my interpretation. But it's that the idea that maybe the employer employee relationship until now has been a bit of a hoax in the sense that uh, there's been lip service paid to creating good environments, but if you look at the stress that people are experiencing and the demands upon people, often that relationship hasn't been as benign as maybe it's been it's been projected. Is that your view? Yes. Yeah. Then a, tell me. I, this. I think
2: I think you know people say. It's it's kind of like, you know, the reports for the American Bar Association. I mean, you know, so so companies have spent a lot of time doing engagement surveys. You look at the Gallup data, engagement is hideous. Uh, you know, you look at the Edelman uh, trust barometer, trust in leaders is bad. You know, so companies have spent a lot of time measuring stuff and talking about stuff and appointing people to look at stuff and worrying about stuff, etc. But they haven't done anything to fix most of the problems. So, yes, the employee, you know, people are most important asset you know is a is something that everybody says and very few people actually implement in terms of what of how they manage their workplaces on a day-to-day basis
1: okay because because that sort of brings us on to power Here's the conflict I'm wrestling with. Uh, on one hand, you've written this book telling people not to make the mistake of being nice at work and working out how to win by sort of playing games. And, and on the other hand, when firms aren't genuinely kind-hearted and altruistic, you've taken them to task for not being nice to people. And I guess, you know, one of the things in, re- related to your book, Power, is the, the notion that, well, sometimes being nice uh, is a naive strategy to adopt that you know niceness has a penalty to it
2: um i think that's you know that's a perceptive comment i think that could be part of it i think the people who rise to the top in many organizations in today's world not the world we might want uh, but the world that currently exists are people who are uh, nastier tougher more willing to work harder more willing to do whatever it takes um to uh you know uh, than their um than, than their than their competition um I mean, you see this in sports. I'm not sure this is healthy, but it is the way it is. You know, if I want to be, you know, the world's best tennis player or certainly the world's best soccer, or, you know, rugby or whatever player, um, one of the ways I have to be able to do that is I have to be able in some sense uh, to, um, I need to have obviously a bunch of technical skills. I also be, need, I need to be more committed than my competition. I need, I need to be able to, in some sense, take more punishment, uh, to run harder, to uh, to. to not um, to not uh, uh, to pay to play through pain to use the uh, the famous phrase Um, and so I'm not sure that that's completely healthy but that is certainly what generates success in many aspects of contemporary life
1: and so the 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 premise of power is is we we often like to believe that the world is fair despite all the the evidence that it isn't fair and, and it's about prevailing once you understand that unfairness is that right?
2: Yep, I think you need to look at the world as it is, not as you would want it to be, and understand why you know <laughs> understand why Donald Trump is president.
1: <laughs> so I was I was chatting to a friend of mine who um, who teaches an MBA program in London, and he he said to me uh, we, I was chatting uh, that was talk uh, talk to you, and he said he he said to me the books become incredibly important in MBA classrooms, the study of power, and. uh Firstly, do, do you feel that the rules have changed since you wrote that book? No. Nope. these books now sort of trying to jump on the back of it, talking about new power and, and trying to move that along. But do you still feel those rules still apply?
2: Oh, you mean, oh, you're, are you thinking of Henry Timms is in the new book, the book New Power? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I know Henry very well. I mean, he and I have joked about this. I said, you wrote a book called New Power. I said, Donald Trump is president of the United States. Uh, Erdogan is president of Turkey. You've got the strong man running Hungary and, you know, you've got, uh, a strong, a strong guy running Poland. You've got, you know, the, 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 now an emperor for life in China. I said, I said, new power exists only one place, which is in the pages of your book. <laughs> so, so you feel that this idea, this idea of democratization, give me a break. I mean, you know, the there are foundations that measure um, the extent to which of um, you know democratization around the world. Democracy, democracy is going backwards, um, unfortunately, which is very depressing. But you know, you see, you see strong people, you see these these strong men. They're often men, almost always men, uh, taking over in countries all over the world. You see minority rights getting. Uh, you know abused, you see people turning their back on immigrants you see you know whatever and actually, what you mostly see is that the you know i mean Donald Trump has been a perfect example he, is, he has taken you know Donald Trump has taken the 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 watchman triggers the the instruments of new power and used it fabulously. And, you know, to, to to create power for himself. And, you know, and you see, we, we, we have all these tech companies. What is true about virtually every tech company in the world, certainly true for Facebook, certainly true for Google. I don't know if it's true for Twitter, but it could be. Um, they have... Supermajority voting stock. You know, so uh, I, the, the, the only reason why Travis Klanick is still not running Uber is that he basically uh, didn't want to fight to stay. Had, had Travis wanted to stay, he'd still be running Uber because he had supermajority ma- voting shares, which are quite typical. So, we, you know, we talk about democracy. There's no democracy in corporate boards. Google has special voting shares um, which give uh, the founders supermajority voting rights. And Mark Zuckerberg has supermajority voting rights. I've had friends in the corporate governance field who have written, you know, articles and books about this, about how, you know, the Silicon Valley is all this new power stuff, except all, all, the go- all the companies are governed by very old power rules. Right. Got it. Could you just talk to me briefly about
1: the relationship between like a soft skill like likability and, and, and re- the relationship between that and power? Because you see people trying to be present themselves as likable. And I, just, I was interested in the relationship there.
2: Well, it's always nice to be liked, uh, but uh, in the words of my dear friend Robert Cialdini, the very, very famous social psychologist, um, uh, before you demonstrate that you're likable, the, for next, the first thing you probably need to demonstrate is you're competent and efficacious. Um, the, the, um, the, uh, Susan Fisk. Uh, and Amy Cuddy have done studies over the years that looked at the fundamental dimensions of social judgment. And we judge people basically along two dimensions, warmth and competence, or likability and agency, or something like that. So, so, number one, are you likable? Are you friendly? Are you nice? Number two, can you get stuff done? Are you competent? Are you agentic, etc.? And while it is conceptually true, that people can be both warm and competent, empirically, the research sense suggests that people see likability and competence as negatively related. Amy Cuddy wrote this amazing Harvard Business School article. The article is relatively short. The title is fabulous. Just because I'm nice, don't assume I'm dumb. And there, and there it is. You know, the theory being that, you know, if you're nice, it must be because you have to be. And if you're any damn good, uh, you would be not, not as nice. And so we see niceness and competence is negatively related. And so what Cialdini would recommend to people is, you know, once you demonstrate... Um once you demonstrate your competence and efficacy, then when you then when you are nice and warm, people will say, "Wow! Considering how smart Bruce is, he's really a nice guy." Uh, or in the words in which I quote in my book, "Power: Why Some People Have and Others Don't," um, a quote from uh, the late Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir: "Don't be so modest; you're not that good."
1: Okay, because toughness is often perceived as intellect. I, I think I think I saw you talking about people who write horrible book reviews people might presume they're unpleasant, but they do presume they're more intelligent.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Fascinating. Um, tell me, this, the, the, the final thing I wanted to, to ask you about was uh, with regards to sort of the, the notion of leadership authenticity and, uh, and just w- what your take of is on that, um, just how those things transfer. We hear a lot of talk about authentic leadership now, and I just wondered... Um, whether that was an honest thing or h- how those things worked with some of the themes that you've discussed. Well, Professor
2: Herminia Abara, who used to be at NCI but now teaches at London Business School, has a fabulous... Um, video, YouTube video, which I think I've tweeted and LinkedIn about, um, and has talked about this. Uh, I mean, basically, to summarize it in a sentence and to oversimplify a very complicated argument that Hermenia has made. You know, authenticity is basically an excuse for not changing. So, you know, say, you Bruce, know, you need to change. No, no, I'm just being my authentic self. Um, we, you, you, I think, I think authenticity, I think people need to be authentic, but I think they're authentic to the wrong thing. You do not need to be authentic to yourself. You need to be authentic to what the human beings around you need from you. So let's say you're running a company or let's say you're running a unit in a company and you got people who are working for you and they are looking to you obviously for intellectual leadership and for your energy and for your concern and your compassion and let's say you've had some catastrophic disaster in your personal life your significant others left you or your child has god forbid committed suicide or something um This is actually a true story I had a friend of mine face. And you come to work. They, you know, on the one hand, they would like to know about your problems, and they would like to be, you know, sympathetic, at least up to a point and for a while, but at the end of the day you need to be authentic to what they need from you. They, they, they need your energy, they need your concern, they need your attention. And they really at the end of the day, it's hard to say this, but it's true, they really at the end of the day don't really care about what you're feeling and what you're going through. Um, and so you need to be authentic, not so much to you and your feelings, oh I'm miserable, I'm depressed, I'm this. You need to be authentic to what the people around you need from you. If they need energy, you need to show up with energy. If they need concern and compassion, you need you need to show them concern and compassion. If they need, you know, uh, you know direction and attention and whatever they need, you need your job as a leader is 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 to be engaged with and available to the people who are working with and for you in ways that help them uh, to do their job and to feel valued and all this other stuff. And you have to do that if you're running 101 degree t- Fahrenheit temperature, if you've, if you've had issues, if you're exhausted, whatever. I mean, so, you know, I mean, so great leaders are great actors. Uh, they are able to put on a show, not on how they are feeling, but on how they need to project to the people around them, um, how they want them to see, to be seen. Do you think
1: does it work the other way? So, is, does authenticity have a value, uh, and and sort of bringing your full self to work have a value for team members, but not for leaders? Or is it all an illusion
2: in your view? Um, I think I think you need to, you know, I was. <laughs> So there was a guy named Ren Zephyropoulos who years ago was, uh, did a video for Harvard Business School and his famous case, Ren and Fred. Anyway, Ren Zephyropoulos said uh, something which I think is right. He said, you know, he said, your parents or your, most of your parents, he said, your, your parents will love you unconditionally. He said, your boss at work is not gonna love you unconditionally. <laughs> work relationships are different. At work, the question is, you know, what what can you do, what are you doing, what is the contribution that you're making? So so I, you know, you can bring your full self to work, but I think what you really ought to bring to work is, is the thing that your boss needs and wants from you. You know, I've heard that, to take an example, uh, Tony Hayward, the former CEO of BP, I do not think did himself any favors when when he was testifying and said, you know, basically, I want my life back. Um, you know, he may have wanted his life back. That was his true authentic self. I mean, he had to show up as somebody, you know, dedicated to fixing the problems that BP was facing with the Gulf oil spill. And he had to show up with energy and he had to show up with enthusiasm. And even if he didn't feel it, you have to sometimes put on a show.
1: So this Elon Musk stuff in the last two weeks where he's sort of crying and saying that 120 hour work weeks have have crushed him. Do you, do you think that's an unnecessary distraction?
2: Well, Elon Musk first of all is a wonderful example of dying for a paycheck. I mean, you know, one of the things one, one of the things we know is that sleep is important. Elon Elon Musk is a walking example of sleep deprivation. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think anybody has that much sympathy for him i mean you know you need to you you, you need to act like a leader and if, if you and one of the things that will help you act like a leader is you get sufficient rest you know and, and don't take too many uh, various kinds of drugs and you know then you'll be much better off
1: Eat, sleep, work, repeat is brought to you in association with the joy of work, the new book by me, Bruce Daisley. Now, some of the themes that Jeffrey Pfeffer has talked about here, about stress, about people feeling burnt out, the themes that start the joy of work. But it goes a lot further than that. There's 30 ways that you can improve the impact of work on you. And some of that is making your team laugh more and be more closely connected. There's a lot of practical suggestions that I think you're going to find really compelling. The Joy of Work is available now as a pre order. You can order it from Amazon or Waterstones today. Pre order the Joy of Work today.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you for
1: listening. As ever, the, the best way to stay in touch with the show is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But you can also listen to us on Stitcher or on Spotify. We're around sort of all the places. All of the episodes are up on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. And you can follow us on Twitter or connect to me on LinkedIn. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.